0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan-Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have another great show today. We're continuing to broadcast from our shelter-in-place locations in Northern California and to our listeners and our viewers from all over the world. You know, the coronavirus pandemic continues to worsen where we're broadcasting from in Northern California has been labeled by the governor of uh, California, Gavin Newsom, as a hot zone. So we're broadcasting from a hot zone. Despite that, we're going to continue to bring Arab talk to our viewers and our listeners. We have a great show today, Jamal, because we're going to be, despite the pandemic, pro-Israel forces continue to attack pro-Palestine and pro-Arab activists on campuses And there continue to be attacks within the academy. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about some, basically some Republican politicians currently living and one who has passed who basically don't believe in the coronavirus or who don't believe in wearing masks. And of course, we're going to have an interesting discussion, I think, about certain people in Hollywood who, who may be coming to terms with Palestine. But we also have a great interview today. That's right, Jess. Uh, First, let me start by wishing everyone
1: Eid Mubarak because Friday is the beginning of Eid Al-Adha for uh, more than a billion and a half Muslims uh, across the world. And, of course, my message to them is uh, enjoy, celebrate, but practice uh, social
0: distancing and celebrate from home, right? Wear a mask. And uh, the Saudi government was very smart this year, Jamal. They only allowed 1,000 people at a time to go into the uh, Grand Mosque and uh, be around the Kaaba at any one time. So it looks like the Saudi government has also uh, got its act together a little bit, at least when it comes to the coronavirus.
1: That's right, so let's go, we're gonna go to our first interview, Jess. As you've mentioned, actually right-wing groups are flooding an ongoing uh, public comment period on whether California should cut ethnic studies uh, in general and Arab American studies specifically from their schools so there is a revised draft of the ethnic studies curriculum is scheduled to be reviewed by the state's instructional quality commission on August 13th and they've been bombarded by groups like Amha uh, groups like uh, you know uh, hate groups telling them that they shouldn't approve it because the fact you know, the fact of the matter, they're against Arab-American studies because uh, there is a mention of Palestine. Of course. Besides, and there is a mention of Palestinian refugees and, and the Nakba and so forth. So uh, let's listen to Lara Kiswani, who is the uh, executive director uh, of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center in the city uh, in San Francisco, Iraq, talk about it. Right-wing groups are flooding an ongoing public comment period on whether California should cut ethnic studies generally and Arab-American studies specifically from their schools. The revised draft of the ethnic studies curriculum is scheduled to be reviewed by the state's Instructional Quality Commission on August 13th. Joining us to discuss this provoking topic Lara Kiswani. Lara, she's the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, Center AROC. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Lara.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I, I use this term provoking. Perhaps I should have said infuriating topic, because really, what's wrong with including Arab American studies in ESMC, the California Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum Draft? What's wrong with that?
2: I mean that's precisely the question we've been posing at all the decision makers like why is this even on the table why is it controversial to include the experience of Arab Americans in a ethnic studies model curriculum where ethnic studies has already sort of laid the groundwork for anti-colonial anti-racist social justice based curriculum and on the higher ed level Arab American studies has become institutionalized as part of that and as and we have the founders of the of third world liberation of the third world um strike the Liberation Front and the Black Student Unions from 1968 who are saying Arab-American studies is absolutely intrinsically connected to ethnic studies. So, yeah, we would argue that that is a question to be posed to those in the, in the decision-making um, body because for us it's a no-brainer. And for our communities who are impacted by really Um, racialized and unjust and inequitable educational system, it would actually have an amazing impact, not only for Arab students, but for all students, if they were taught a a curriculum that centered the experience of Arab in this moment.
1: Now, earlier this month, I know that uh, the the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, AROC, released a report exploring the representations of Arabs and or Muslims in the San Francisco Bay Area school system. And one of their most striking findings is that only 2.3 percent of the students they surveyed, meaning Iraq, you guys surveyed, said that they learned about Arabs and/or Muslims at school. 2.3 percent, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this makes like really like I say no brainer, as you've said, that you need to educate the children, really, the young young. Uh, um, you know, young boys and girls about Arab Americans because that's something that is missing in in, in the schools, and and then um, I was looking at also like uh, just to just to to say that this is uh, it's it's not going to be like a separate right. It's not like going to be a separate department. It's it's really including in the American Asian Studies, right? Is that is that my understanding?
2: Yeah, so, um, so the ethnic studies model curriculum was drafted by a committee of scholars and experts in the field. So they're teachers who have been doing this work for decades, and they work together to form this curriculum because they were asked and tasked by the, the California Department of Education to do so, and when they develop this curriculum, they included Arab American studies under the rubric of Asian American studies. Um, And this uh, uh, really follows the tradition in higher education. There are departments across the country where Arab scholars are now housed under Asian American studies. Because of shared experience around war and colonialism and militarism, xenophobia and Orientalism, there's a lot of intersectionalities there. And so historically, that is where we have landed as um, scholars in the higher ed field. So following that trajectory, they included it under Asian American Studies. And since then, we've had the National Association of Asian American Studies come out with a statement Absolutely, Arab American studies should be in the ethnic studies model curriculum under Asian American studies. We've had the Third World Liberation Front and Black Student Union veterans of the strike who founded what is now called ethnic studies, saying absolutely it should be included. Yet what's happening is we have pro-Israeli interest groups and other right-wing groups who are not putting pressure on decision makers to do otherwise. Um, so all those in the field who are experts and authorities on the matter have said this is how it should be and this is why. And yet we still we still keep coming up against this argument that. Does Arab American studies fit under ethnic studies? Is it taking away from the discipline itself and the integrity of the four areas? And we keep saying it doesn't because it's actually not adding another area. It's expanding Asian American studies to include Arab American studies and Asian American studies scholars are saying that's where it belongs.
1: So so what's, you know, I'm, I'm looking also about the, the campaign that has been mounted basically to uh, stop you know including uh, arab american studies and uh, there has been uh, there have been groups uh, that they sc- describe themselves as civil rights organizations and then when you look deeper at these groups you find that you have right wing pro israel groups often racist and uh, basically the same groups that have been trying to stifle mm-hmm. uh the voices of arab americans on college campuses uh, the the uh, you know censor palestinian students from uh, their first amendment uh, to criticize the occupation uh, by israel and so on it's just like i was looking at this whole list i mean am i missing something I mean, am I missing something, or uh, this can? Because you know, because you know, it could be very deceiving. Including there, ha- there was uh, an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, mm-hmm. uh, which I was surprised really. I was very disappointed that allowed Amha, mm-hmm. uh, one of these groups, basically, to write uh, an op-ed about this topic uh, when it is well known. We now have all the facts who funds AMHA. They're in the same category as Campus Watch, the same category of all these hate groups. And yet they're allowed the platform to. And basically, what I was looking at it, and this is maybe that what I want you to explain, is they're saying by including um, Arab American studies, it's going to promote uh, anti Semitism. How is that? I mean, where, where, where does this come from?
2: That comes from Islamophobia and racism, anti-Arab racism. Uh, Time and time again, we have to prove that fighting for our dignity and and liberation, that fighting for Palestinian human rights and self-determination, is not, quote unquote, anti-Semitic. And we've told decision makers that that's not our argument to have to prove otherwise. It's actually a racist claim waged against us and that we should absolutely reject and we shouldn't even warrant it with a response. I think the question at hand is, and you laid it out quite eloquently, is that the opposition to including Arab American studies is very much centered around pro-Israeli interest groups. And it's precisely because you cannot talk about Arab Americans and the Arab-American struggle, without talking about one of the largest social movements in our region, historically, which is the Palestinian struggle. And if you're going to talk about ethnic studies, which is very foundation of ethnic studies, it's about indigenous and racialized and oppressed communities. It's about anti-colonial studies. How can Arab American studies be taught without addressing the question of Palestine? Well, the settler colonial um, occupation of Palestine. And so ethnic studies scholars have long, like before, uh, before this ethnic studies model curriculum, been integrating the question of Palestine within their curriculum because it helps, as Dr. Angela Davis has said, understanding the struggle for Palestine and the occupation of Palestine, the settler colonial state of Israel, actually helps people in the United States understand racism more deeply. And so it really opens the door for more critical thinking and analytical thinking around the questions of race, militarism, oppression, gender. Um, And so all of these things are actually made more possible by educating people on the Palestinian struggle. And that is precisely why the pro-Israeli opposition, is really adamant about making sure they put an end altogether with Arab American studies because they know you can't talk about Arab American studies without talking about the question of Palestine, rightfully so. And for them, having educators actually bring to surface the real struggles of Palestinians and Arab Americans from the vantage point of Arab Americans and Palestinians, which is at the heart of what ethnic studies is. It's a—it's about self-determination, us determining what what our stories are, what our narratives are and how they should be taught. Um, that is a threat to the status quo, let alone the Zionist institutions that are very much deeply committed to making sure they stifle any question of Palestine and any educa- education on the topic, let alone in K through 12. We know as AROC, we've come up against this many times, you know, just trying to get Arabic. And I know I've spoken about this on your show before. When we fought to get Arabic, Arabic taught in San Francisco Unified School District. Who was in opposition to that? The pro-Israeli interest groups. Any way to build power in the Arab community is actually a threat to those who are insistent on making sure we continue to be marginalized, oppressed, and occupied, and precisely that being the pro-Israeli interest groups. So we built a whole multiracial coalition around this, and we're hoping that the decision makers see what this is really about.
1: Now, in the current curriculum uh, for K-12, through Palestinians are only mentioned twice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's as refugees, with no mention of why they became refugees, no mention of the Nakba, no mention of the Naksa. Like, all of a sudden, they just kind of parachuted all Mm -hmm. over the world as refugees. So there's Mm -hmm. no mention of that. And then, of course, um, you know, we can't even take it further than this, because even, like, the discussion about... Human rights about the discussion of apartheid, which, by the way, as you know, Israelis themselves are discussing this, and prominent Jewish Americans have, are recently, you know, talking about it in op-eds and uh, saying the situation on the ground is apartheid. Is this is? Do you think that this is something what they're scared of? Is to know the reality of what's happening on the ground in Palestine?
2: I mean, if you Google alone ethnic studies model curriculum in Palestine or ethnic studies model curriculum, you're going to see a series of articles that claim the whole curriculum is about BDS. And what's interesting is so they have been using the question of the curriculum around BDS as a target of Arab American studies. Now what's interesting, first and foremost, is the curriculum on BDS is not even under Arab American studies it's under social movements of the ethnic studies model curriculum as a whole, as it should be. How can you not talk about BDS as a social movement in this political moment? Um, and so they're using that as a way to target the entire Arab American studies curriculum. So I would say, yes, it is a it is an attempt to delegitimize any criticism of Israel. It is an attempt to ensure that Israel um, in the classroom is, is actually not discussed at all in, in, any, other, in any way other than. And how it's taught in social sciences, which we know in area studies when they teach about the Middle East or the Islamic empire. That's all the, um, students today learn in terms of the experience of Arabs and Muslims in this country. And oftentimes, more than not, that curriculum is skewed. It's racist, Islamophobic. Um, and it only, as Nadine Nebert often puts, it only invisibilizes us as the terrorist, hyper-invisibilizes as the terrorist or the threat, or completely invisibilizes us as anything else. So there's no in-between. And I know our Turaf Report, which I want to just—I know you named it a little bit ago—about the youth-led survey that um, that resulted in findings that were outsta- astounding. But I want to say that's that more astounding is that we had youth lead that survey. So the, our youth program are the ones who developed the questions, who surveyed their peers in their classrooms. So imagine young people. In their own, their, and finding out information that third classmates only hear about Arabs and Muslims from social media, from YouTube, from Facebook. They don't know anything else about Arab Americans. And so, for a young person to have to find that out themselves from their peers, and then to find out things like terrorist and oppressor and war are the main terms that come to mind when they think of an Arab or a Muslim, I mean, that is the daily lived reality of Arabs. And what gets lost in the conversation when pro Israeli interest r- groups get involved, it becomes a question of what should be taught about Palestine-Israel versus what is the experience of racialized and oppressed communities Arab Americans being one of them, and what's the impact of actually instituting a curriculum that's robust, that's rooted in the integrity of the discipline of ethnic studies with the support of scholars and founders of ethnic studies that could actually advance an understanding of social and economic justice very differently than how students are taught today. And that's the question on the table right now. This ethnic studies model curriculum, it's not just about removing Arab American studies. What we've been arguing and scholars have been arguing is if you do this, if you target Arab American studies and Palestine in totality you're actually erasing and and disappearing the struggle of the Third World Liberation Front and the Black Student Union of 1968 and what they actually fought for. Because what they fought for is to advance these hard conversations and to actually go against the status quo.
1: Now, the bond uh, has been growing between different ethnic groups with the Arab-American community and especially with the African-American community with Black Lives Matter. And we uh, with sadly, actually, uh, people started to make, uh, only to make that connection between the struggle of the uh, African American community in this country uh, with the recent murder of George Floyd. We've seen uh, people making that connection with the how um, the police is reacting to the African American community, and, and then uh, they're looking at uh, how it's happening there on a daily basis. In Palestine, do you feel, uh, I mean, I know that you have a lot of uh, uh, groups behind you. There was a letter by the California Scholars for Academic Freedom uh, supporting, um, you know, this campaign and also other ethnic groups. Is that something to take into account with what's happening right now on the ground with racism and basically... uh, lack of education as far as different ethnic groups within this country to highlight also what's happening to Muslims and Arabs in this country as well?
2: Yeah, well, two things. I think it's important to note that, yes, um, we are seeing um, education and more highlight- highlighted like public or popular consciousness around the connections between Black and Palestinian solidarity today um, as a result of the murder of George Floyd but we don't want to disappear the history, and I know you know this well, um, of Black Palestinian solidarity. That's the tradition ARC movement comes from, right? So the Palestinian liberation movement historically has always been informed by, um, and very much shaped by, the Black liberation struggle. So I just want to also remind our, our listeners here that this is something that's always been part and parcel of our understanding as Arabs in diaspora and as Palestinians, very much shaped and informed our politics and And we are um, hopeful and inspired by the fact that now the general like popular consciousness has also started to make those connections in terms of those things. And so I think that is why we are seeing, for instance, the uh, California Department of Education decide we're going to do a series of webinars on ethnic studies. We're going to focus in on this question because you can't turn a blind eye to racial inequalities. You can't turn a blind eye to structural racism in this moment. And the question of what's going to, what kind of classroom we're going to come back to, right? And like, what is it that we want our students to be able to grapple with so that we can build a society that is better than what we're seeing today, right? Um, and hopefully transformed and quite different than what we're seeing today. So yes, absolutely. I think it's very much rooted in this moment in terms of the The reason why we need to really ramp up our support for the ethnic studies model curriculum as a whole so it doesn't get diluted and for the inclusion of Arab American Studies precisely for the reasons you noted Um, so if we come out with a curriculum that they they release in the coming days a revised curriculum that they will interrogate on August 13th that actually erases Arab American Studies what message does that send not only to Arab Americans but to other marginalized and oppressed communities in this country when the question that is just too controversial for pro-Israeli interest groups or for any political interest group for that matter, um, that they get to dictate, and specifically a white interest group essentially gets to dictate what is being taught about communities of color. That's really at the end of the the day, that's what's happening. If this was about apartheid South Africa and a curriculum on the table about whether or not to talk about apartheid South Africa was being put to question, would a a white organization, um, would a bunch of Afrikaners have the authority to go lobby our decision makers about do not include the question of apartheid South Africa, it's just too controversial and offensive to us. Absolutely not. That shouldn't have been the case, and it shouldn't be the case today. And that is really, at the end of the day, what we're grappling with. The question of Palestine often gets exceptionalized, as does the whole experience of Arab Americans. We know Arab Americans are not taught anywhere in the curriculum currently as it stands. It's not taught in social studies. It's not taught in English. It's not, unless you have an amazing teacher who's willing to really advance their, their classroom in a different way and take it upon themselves to do so. What this curriculum does is it offers teachers, well meaning teachers across the state who want to do different, who want their students to understand racialized communities, indigenous communities differently, especially given this political moment, who are activated, tools to work with. Here's a model curriculum for you to use, including how to talk about Arab Americans. How can we not talk about Arab Americans in this moment with the Trump administration, with the Muslim ban, with the wars in our region, with hyper-militarization, with the increase of federal troops now coming to local cities where everybody's looking to Arabs to say, like, how do we understand this? Because we are the experts on this since we deal with this in our homelands and now dealing with it here.
1: So what can people do to be heard, really, to express their opinion. I know uh, I'm not so sure about this August 13th hearing. Is that a final hearing? Is that it? I mean, it's they mm-hmm. or, or is it subject to uh, because they said there is a, it's the revised draft. Uh, uh, it's going to set for August 13th to be reviewed. Then they said there is a 30 day period opens for public comment after which the commission meets again to consider additional changes?
2: Well, the important thing for your viewers to know is that right now they are accepting public comment, and they were going to use that public comment to determine the revisions we're going to see on August 13th. So it's actually imperative that everybody across the country, we have a national petition that people can sign and it goes directly to your local representatives as well as directly to CDE and registered as a public comment to sign that petition because we want to register our support for Arab American studies and Palestine in the curriculum. And then after that, on August August 13th, we are asking people to mobilize to that hearing if you live in California to speak up and to show support for the inclusion of Arab American studies. And then following that, the State Board of Education will then deliberate over revisions based on what they've heard from the community. So we want our community and our allies to be heard in this. Um, And then decide on a final curriculum that will be brought to us later in September. Um, So there will be multiple chances for us to ensure that our voices are heard, but we want to really put pressure on them now because we know that really one of the most important points in this work is August 13th when the IQC will deliberate on this question. And we've been waiting for this meeting for close to now six months because they keep putting it off. Um, and so because of the public pressure that we've also garnered, so it's actually that much more important that we show up on August 13th, but prior to that, to go to savearabamericanstudies.org. Um, that's savearabamericanstudies.org, and you can see where you can sign a petition, you can send a public comment directly, um, and then you can also learn more about what what is the type of breadth of support that we have. Can you also get a letter of support from your organization or institution, and how can you plug into the campaign?
1: Well, you've made it very easy, uh, and I know uh, I've received your email, which is I really thank you and I appreciate your work on this and many other issues. But also, I also recommend uh, to our uh, listeners on Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco eighty nine point five FM to go to the Iraq website uh, to get more information about this. And also, I want to you know hopefully we'll get enough people to respond. To make this uh, campaign count, really.
2: Thank you so much for covering this important topic. And definitely, please go to the websites to learn more and plug in.
1: Thank you, Lara. Hopefully, we'll talk very soon in person. I forgot to mention, we're talking, uh, we're both sheltering in place in Northern California because we listen to science.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, here in my kitchen. <laughs>
0: Uh, That was the voice of uh, Lara Kiswani, Executive Director of AROC, Arab Resource and Organizing uh, Center here in San Francisco, Jamal. And, you know, it doesn't matter that there's a pandemic, it doesn't matter that there's world economic collapse. The, The right wing extremists and pro Israel forces will never miss an opportunity to attack Arab. American or Palestinian issues within our school systems, whether it be at the high school level or at the collegiate level or at the postgraduate level, they never cease to attack. So, although I'm not surprised by this, Jamal, the the, the kind of intensity seems really, you know, um, kind of, you know, misplaced, especially right now. That's right, Jess. And uh...
1: You know, it's, it's just, this is an ongoing battle. Like you said, it's on college campuses and this is moving into classrooms. I mean, this is, we're talking about children, uh, elementary schools they, that, uh, for example, ARAC did uh, a survey in the Bay Area about how much, uh, you know, young uh, boys and girls know about Arab Americans and they know very little. Less than 3% answered right. that they actually know about it. So, of course, this is a very much needed thing to teach, especially in this current atmosphere of Islamophobia and Donald Trump and whatever, you know, through education. Yet again, they face this uh, obstacle and this campaign by most of these groups who kind of uh, put this facade that they are uh, human rights organizations or civil rights activists, and they're all, most of them are basically well-known hate groups. in 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 any form and and shape and well that's exactly yeah it's really it's really sad but that's the reality of things that's on that uh, have been going we're just going to keep educating people about this topic and talking about it but and arab americans are not going to disappear you know
0: well let's just look at it from a, a broader perspective why shouldn't Uh, students at any level, Jamal, in the public school, private school, elementary, middle, high school, collegiate level, why shouldn't they have a broad education about global affairs? And when it comes to global affairs and and diversity within this country, all over, Arab Americans make up a, a, a very substantial aspect of that diversity. And of course, you know, representing, you know, large segments of, you know, the Middle East. So, the idea that bringing Arab voices to the classroom at all levels is 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 kind of you know activating these right wing extremists and I, and I have to say some of these extremists Jamal were labeled as domestic terrorist organizations by the Southern Poverty Law Center um, I mean these are really extreme groups, again, most of them pro israel they do not want any aspect. Of humanity or reality representing Arab Americans to be portrayed at any level in our school system it 's pretty disturbing
1: it is so we're going to keep we 're going to follow up on this topic obviously we 've been talking about it on different levels with, uh, before with Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi on several of our shows and interviews on college campuses now they 're taking the battle to elementary schools so we'll we 'll keep an eye on it. So uh, just today, um, this is something we've been talking about. We've been kind of kidding about. uh, Trump uh, woke up early this morning and uh, put this tweet, which um, I'll be reading from his Twitter feed. And he says, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good between brackets, 2020 will be the most, and this is all in caps, inaccurate fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote. So throwing this idea that we should postpone the election.
0: I have three things to say about that, Jamal. One It's another distraction from the reality of the completely catastrophic failure of Trump and his administration to adequately manage the coronavirus pandemic. So people are going to get inflamed about this outrageous comment. Number two, that statement comes from an individual who's clearly scared about the upcoming election. And three, breaking news for Donald Trump. It's not the president's decision to delay the election. Only Congress has the authority within our Constitution to do that. And it was interesting to me today, even the Republican lapdogs who support Trump all the way, many of them came out to criticize this comment, Jamal. It's completely outrageous. And frankly, I think it's a distraction technique because when we talk about what's happening with the pandemic and his catastrophic failure Resulting in so many Americans getting sick and having died, this is, in my mind, nothing but a distraction.
1: And today, you know, it's it's funny, it comes uh, on the date or on the day when they announced that our economy basically shrunk by 30 percent, one third, you know, one third, and all of a sudden he throws this in the midst. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, uh, we're both not constitution attorneys, but I think I've read the Constitution more than Donald Trump. <laughs> and the 20th Amendment, as far as I remember, requires the President of the United States, POTUS, to leave office by noon on January 20th. That's, That's right. one. And then the other part of the statute, then you have that the elections, the presidential, should be held, and this is on Tuesday next after the first. Monday in November. Those, this is, this is something that's written in the Constitution. Yeah. And, and so, and I was like trying to look like, what, what kind of, like how can he delay the election? Uh, the only thing that I'm worried about, and, 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 and we didn't have enough time to invite a Constitution attorney is declaring an emergency. That's right. Emergency power, and, and if, if he could do that, but what, based on COVID, when people now and with technology, uh, we're conducting business, we're talking like you and I are talking from distance apart. People can vote by by mail, absentee ballot. We've been using absentee ballot for ages. The uh, U.S. armed forces all over the world, you know, they vote. They vote from battleships in, in the Pacific. They vote from Germany, in Europe, et cetera. And then, and then he's trying to create this emergency. I mean, we're not in World War III unless he creates World War III. And then you're right, uh, Mitch McConnell, your favorite uh, senator, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Representative Kevin McCarthy. They were quick to reject this, with uh, along with others. So, so I hope they poured some cold water. But I know what how he does. We know how he thinks. That's right. He he, he keeps. Uh, Scratching that scab until it starts bleeding, that's you right, know, he's Jamal. testing the water, and then maybe thirty-five percent of his of the of the population or the voters in this country will say, "Yeah, that's a great idea." He's 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 testing his uh, his base for now.
0: So here he, here's my concern, and I mentioned this last week on the show, Jamal. The Trump administration has enlisted the efforts of John Yu. John Yoo is the infamous uh, UC Berkeley Hastings Law School uh, professor who helped the Bush administration uh, write a memo basically legalizing uh, torture, which is illegal everywhere in the world. But they got John Yoo to write this really crazy legal opinion to get them to authorize what they call enhanced interrogation. It's been roundly criticized, condemned, not only uh, uh, nationally, but internationally. So guess who the Trump administration has been consulting with recently? None other than John Yoo. So I do believe that they're looking for constitutional justification for somehow using the executive power of the office of the presidency to do some crazy stuff around the election. Maybe they won't delay it, Jamal, but, I think something crazy is on its way, because if Donald Trump sees everything that we 're seeing, everything that the rest of the country is seeing that he 's so far behind in the polls, we have to expect that he 's going to try to do something crazy
1: well, every poll so far puts him at ten to twelve percent disadvantage exactly every, and some some put even the gap is wider with other polls but but every single poll and it has been consistent for the past month or so. Right,
0: but that was true with Hillary Clinton too, so let's not get too excited.
1: No, I'm not, but I'm just saying, uh, so I can see the panic button, yes. I, uh, I can see his, his brain is spinning, trying to find different excuses, ways, uh, including uh, not leaving office, including uh, if, he, if he loses, he has an excuse to say he got cheated and, and all kinds of things, you know, Or dragging, dragging the case. If it's a close election into the Supreme Court, like what happened between Al Gore and George W., you know, if it's a close election, it doesn't have to be that close. But if we're talking about maybe one percentage point, this can drag on. So he's they're setting, you know, absolutely. They're setting a plan. You're absolutely right. And I I think this is by far the most dangerous, not not alone, not that it's just crazy, but it's the most dangerous tweet that Donald Trump has tweeted thus far.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, Jamal. And uh, I anticipate that he's going to try to do something crazy. And, you know, he has uh, uh, Bill Barr, William Barr, you know, the highest uh, uh law enforcement official in the land is the attorney general of the United States fully in his back, back pocket uh William Barr gave an outrageous uh piece of testimony to the you know in the Congress uh, a few days ago it was outrageous some of the things that he said they asked Bill Barr Jamal is it absolutely wrong for uh, the president of the United States to solicit Help from a foreign entity? Yes or no? He couldn't even answer it unequivocally. He hesitated and hemmed and hawed. This is the highest law enforcement official of the United States. So you have Bill Barr, you have John Yu, you have Donald Trump. That is a scary. Um, that's a scary trio of musketeers, Jamal, who are cooking up something around the elections. I'm I'm concerned about it too. You're listening
1: to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We're moving to the next topic. Jess. we've been talking about the, about uh, how more and more um, um, Jewish voices or, or formerly Zionist voices uh, that uh, who supported Israel are now are speaking against uh, Israel and calling it uh, what it is apartheid. Uh, and uh, the most recently, of course, we spoke about uh, Peter Beinart's article, and we've had um, guests talk about it uh, uh, recently. But the most outspoken, and of course, these are celebrities. Uh, now, figure that surface is the actor Seth, Seth Rogen, right. and, and, and then this—he had he was uh, interviewed by in Mondavis, And uh, this is some of the words that he said. He said, Israel is ridiculous, antiquated, and based on lies about other people's land. Well,
0: that's a a pretty strong statement. But
1: I have to say... Then he also continues and said, and I also think that as a Jewish person, like I was, fed a huge amount of lies about Israel my entire life. You know, they never tell you that, ah, by the way, there were people there. They make it seem like it was just sitting there. And I can't say the word, oh, All the F doors open, you know.
0: Right, right. Well, so, okay, so I want to say the same thing to Seth Rogen that I said to Peter Barnard. Excellent statement. Um, glad that you're beginning to open your eyes and see the reality but my comment to Seth Rogen and to Peter Beinart is, what the heck took you so long to come to your senses? And I have to think that with Peter Beinart, with Seth Rogen, as well as this emerging group of you know, liberal Zionists, Jamal, that uh, we've been talking about, they are seeing the political writing on the wall. They are seeing that Israel has hitched its wagon with Donald Trump and white supremacy and um, racism and, you know, um, they basically see, I I think that this is, you know, the time to kind of speak out against it, which is great. I still think, you know, hey, you guys, would you have done this if Obama was still the president? Would you do this if there was a Democrat in the White House? Come on. It's good. But, you know, you should have done this a long time ago.
1: Well, I agree with you. I mean, uh, but I say better late than never, okay? <laughs> <laughs> better late than never. So, so I'm, I'm taking it, uh, I'm softer on this issue. You I, are I, a little I, softer, I see I, that. I, 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 see, I see your point 100%. And, but what I see, the more of them speaking out and, and pulling their heads from the sand, they buried yeah. their heads and look the other way, Try to create this utopia, about Israel and ignore the plight of the Palestinians and ignore the suffering of the Palestinians and ignore the apartheid wall that Israel built, ignore the massacres uh, in Gaza and elsewhere. And now they're seeing the reality and they're seeing that what these uh, colonial settlers in general, like especially the ones living in the West Bank, what they're trying to form yeah. and what they're trying to create ex land without its people and, 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 and create, a, you know, a, an apartheid
0: system and
1: uh, but Jim Jamal, Crow.
0: But Jamal, the first, mo- most, the most recent massacre that occurred in Gaza uh, in this century was 2009. We're talking 11 years ago was the first, you know, really horrific massacre of Palestinian civilians in Gaza by the Israeli military. After that, there were two more horrific military incursions in Gaza that killed so many Palestinian men, women and children. The annexation and theft of Palestinian land since 1948, since 1967, since Oslo. Yes, better late than never. But I have to think that they're also trying to protect their own brand. I have to think that because Peter Beinart, Seth Rogen, they fancy themselves as wanting to be liberal. And you and I have been talking about this for decades. You can't be a Zionist and a true progressive at the same time. It's just impossible. I think finally some of them are feeling the pressure because of the Trump administration and its association with the uh, Israeli policies. They feel the need to finally speak out. Yes, better late than never, but come on guys. This has been going on for 72 years.
1: I'll take the better
0: late than never. (laughs) And I
1: I encourage the others who have been burying their heads in the sand to wake Wake up up. and smell the coffee and start talking truth, the truth. We're not asking them to be pro-Palestinian. We're not, we just want them to be speaking. We want them to speak the truth. That's it. That's all. Nothing more, nothing less. So, in the final few minutes, uh, we we'll always give the health update. I mean, it's something like crazy just within the past 48 hours, Yes, You mentioned it early in the show. Uh, Louis Gomert, a Republican from Texas, test so positive, test positive uh, COVID 19. He was running around. Uh, the uh, halls, uh, in Congress, uh, actually conducting. He he was part of two or three meetings before. He said he tested positive. Was bragging earlier. He did that. He didn't need to wear a mask. Now he tested positive. Then sadly, and I don't like. I don't. I don't want anyone to gloat over the death of anyone, or even I don't, or gloat over the someone contracting uh, COVID nineteen. God forbid. But then you have Herman Cain, a presidential candidate, Uh, of course, he's the pizza magnate, uh, supporter of Donald Trump, was in Tulsa, Oklahoma in June at a big rally for Donald Trump and was seen without wearing a mask. So Absolutely. he contracted, we don't know if he contracted from there, but it makes sense to me when you're, when you're surrounded by hundreds of people, or Donald Trump like to exaggerate sometimes his rallies and he said he has tens of thousands of people, I don't know how big, but it's still a rally. Still you have hundreds of people in that room. He was walking around, and as I've looked at the video and I've seen many others weren't wearing masks as well. Right. He contracts COVID-19, he's been suffering, and recently was put on a ventilator, etc. Just like the 150,000 Americans passed away... That's right, Jamal. ...because of this. And so what gives that still, we're still having... We haven't controlled the COVID-19, we're still having a president who's in denial, even though he said he's not, and we're still seeing... Hundreds if not thousands of people walking around without wearing a mask.
0: Well, Jamal Let me just put this in context about how crazy this all is Okay on the level of craziness Louis Gomert contracted AIDS uh, uh, contracted uh, coronavirus was around his office was around his um, uh, AIDS was around his staff and told them, basically berated them if they did wear a mask. So that's kind of crazy. Number two, he had the audacity yesterday when interviewed after finding out that he was exposed to the uh, COVID-19 virus. He said, and I quote, I think it's because I was wearing a mask and moving it so much, that's how I got exposed to COVID-19. Crazy. No, this is Jamal. To our listeners and our viewers, when Louis Gohmert says, "I got COVID-19 because I was wearing a mask," that's not just crazy and anti-scientific. I'm talking about we're living in the dark ages. We're living at a time when people are not are saying an, anti-scientific, antithetical, crazy things about the virus known to be false. Then you have the president of the United States, Jamal, who said, oh, wearing a mask is good. But yet he tweets out a video of a crazy doctor saying that she, there's a cure for COVID-19 and hydroxychloroquine works. When it doesn't, there's no scientific basis for it. So the, the, the sad reality, Jamal, is that uh, 21 states now are in the hot zone. Four other states are going to be in the hot zone by the end of the week. It is each week, Jamal, more and more out of control. Thousands of people are dying each day. We have over 150,000 Americans who have perished. And it's fair to say that the lack of leadership and the lack of the ability for Americans to consistently shelter in place, social distance, and wear masks is causing this significant uptick in exposure and death. We, as a country, Jamal, look like fools to the rest of the world, because if you look at Europe, if you look at other places, you know, they've been able to flatten the curve. um, And we have seen time and time again, Jamal, like Spain, for example, they flattened the curve, they relaxed it. What is happening now in Spain? They're coming up with a second wave now. So... The fact that here in the United States we have a president who is um, doing things that is enhancing and creating and facilitating more and more people getting sick, I think is it makes me think of what it was like in the Dark Ages, Jamal. This is this is really kind of um, um, the, there's no other word to talk about. It is un, unconscionable that we would have leaders like Louis Gohmert, like Donald Trump you know, basically advocating for, you know, treatments that don't work and not really supporting a a national uh, mask uh, policy. It's it's terrible. And I'll tell you, Jamal, I say this every week and I'm right and I'm sorry, I'm right. It's going to get a lot worse.
1: Well, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing it. it's getting worse every single day. Uh, this might be also another legal question, because now I'm starting to think, okay, if you, if you are causing the death of others, in other words, you're not wearing a mask like Gohmert and now other members of Congress or his, or his own staff contractors and somebody dies, aren't you criminally responsible for their death?
0: Well, I have news for you, Jamal. Your friend... Mitch McConnell <laughs> wants to put in the uh, the the wants to put into a bill that you know the the next bill that's coming out in terms of uh, extending uh, unemployment benefits and financial package for the country. He wants to put a clause in the bill that says you cannot sue people because of that. So they're already thinking about this, Jamal, because there is liability, and you have Republican senators who want to put in their bill relieving people of any li- criminal liability if they do that very thing.
1: Yeah, because I, you know, the more I think about it before, yes, the public uh, uh, was, was receiving mixed messages from the politicians, from the president of the United States. Maybe but not from
0: scientists. On. Here's the thing, scientists have been clear, Jamal, wear a mask.
1: Yeah, but I said it, there wasn't a clear policy Okay. There's no policy. Now, now within even, you know, within the congressional hall, yesterday I saw the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi saying that she's imposing, you know, basically right. everyone Finally. has to wear a mask. Like now this is since March we are talking about now in a couple of days we're entering into August.
0: Right? Right. So here's the thing, Jamal. The American Federation of Teachers, which is the second largest collective bargaining unit of teachers in the country announced yesterday um, because the Trump administration with uh, Betsy DeVos still are pushing to have, you know, school open with kids going to school. They they don't want to go to Jacksonville. They want to protect themselves, but they want to send our children back to school. The International or the American Federation of Teachers has announced that they will go on strike this is you know i think it's a million and a half teachers all over the country have announced that if it's not safe we are going to go on strike and we will not put our students or ourselves at risk you also have baseball teams like the uh the mariners right the uh the uh it's not it's the miami mariners that's right of of uh of, of the major league baseball They, you know, 14 of their players have contracted uh, coronavirus. They had to suspend their games. Um, I don't know what Republicans are thinking, like Louis Gohmert and some of the other Republicans, but um, this is going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I don't think sports are going to be able to continue, Jamal. I'm sorry to say that. But I think Given what happened with the uh, Marlins and given what's happening in other sports, there's a good chance that sports will have to shut down too. Well, uh,
1: sorry again, about the we, bad news. We don't have a good news to report on the coronavirus. Hopefully people will listen. Hopefully but the good news is if you,
0: wear, if you wear a mask, it does work. It, it works. Yeah. If you practice good sanitation, it works. So, um, you know, I don't know what to tell people. I'm sorry about Herman Cain. I hope he rests in peace, man. But that picture of him in Tulsa sitting there laughing and joking without a mask, I found so troubling myself. It's, it's a terrible story. Well,
1: uh, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, Uh, We also like to thank our uh, viewers on YouTube and, and Facebook, and we will talk to you next week.
0: See you next week.